Um, let's see, for uh, maybe like three or four weeks now, uh, I've been doing a, a, a Bible study, a growth group uh, on parenting. Last uh, quarter, I did one on, on marriage. And so what comes after marriage? Parenting, right? So uh, we've been going through this book right here by Paul David Tripp that's called Parenting. 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. It's a good one. If you are a parent and you're looking for something to read, uh, I would highly recommend this. It's, it's super cool. And uh, I'll, I'll like, leave it up here so you can come check it out uh, afterwards if you'd like to. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of, of parenting book. Uh, it's, it's not really like a, it's not a child psychology book. Uh, it's, it's not really a book of like tips and tricks on how to uh, like manage your kids better. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a discipline book. Uh, it's, it's not like that. Uh, re- really, it's a book about the gospel. Just, just like it says. I mean, and so far, the book has really been more about us as parents understanding and believing and living out and exemplifying the gospel to our children. Right off the bat, uh, he reminds parents that they are not owners of their kids. Uh, instead, we are ambassadors. We are, we are representatives of God. Our children belong to Him. And so our role as parents then is to point our kids to God, to help them uh, learn who He is and what He's like and what He's done, and, and, and to teach them about, about Jesus and to demonstrate humble submission to God, and to be these these like conduits of, of grace and forgiveness and love to our kids. And I know, I know, like it sounds, it sounds like a little bit touchy feely when I describe it that way. Uh, but th- but this guy is he's hardcore. Like he he's uh, he's a serious dude. He just believes with all of his heart in, in the transforming power of the gospel. And, and I think I agree with him. Uh, the fourth chapter of this book is titled Inability. And, and right at the beginning of the chapter, there's this principle that he states. He says, recognizing what you are unable to do is essential to good parenting. He then talks about how we try to, to control our kids through lots of different means, things like fear or rewards or shame. Because what we ultimately want as parents is to affect like real, lasting heart change in our children. But those, those tools that we use don't accomplish that goal. They might have some temporary success, but they really don't affect lasting real heart change because we're not able to do that. We're not able to to truly change the hearts of our kids. Only God can. We're not able to save them from their sin. Only God can. We're not able to help free them from that, that bondage. Only Jesus can. And so at some point, as parents, we need to recognize our inability and cry out to God for help and then point our kids to Jesus every chance we get. Because because when we think 
that we're able, then we start doing things in our own way and under our own strength and with our own ability. And we end up doing things that are ultimately counterproductive. I read through that chapter that at the same time that I was working on uh, the sermon for this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 5. This, this section here in the first five verses of 1 Peter 5 is for those who are elders and leaders in the church. People who are, who are spiritual parents. But I think the same kind of principles apply. I think we could even uh, use a, a modified version of his tagline from that chapter on inability. Because I think uh, recognizing what you are unable to do is essential to good leadership as well as good parenting. As, as leaders, we have to recognize our limits. And we have to cry out to God for help and then just point people to Jesus every chance we get. And how, how, how foolish and arrogant it would be to try and parent under my own power or to try and pastor under my own power. It just doesn't work. Let's read through this passage and and then talk through some of the advice that he gives to those who would be leaders in the church. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 1-5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, uh, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter addresses this part of his letter specifically to elders. And so probably a good place to start off here would be uh, asking the question, what does that mean? What, what exactly is an elder? How do we define that word? An elder quite literally just means someone older. Uh, and it, it could refer to somebody who's advanced in years, but usually when it's used in Scripture, and certainly here, it has a specific connotation. It's, it's really talking more about this office. It's, it's not just talking about someone older, but someone who has this, this role of leadership and ministry within the church. Because, I don't know if you know, there can be people who are advanced in years, but not necessarily spiritually mature, Right? And then there could be people who aren't necessarily all that old, but who have been believers for a long time and are very mature in the Lord. So this isn't necessarily something that's talking about age. In the book of Acts, we see Paul appointing elders at all of the church that he planted and visited because he understood that there was this need for leaders who would hold fast to the truth of the gospel and, and, and not let that be shaken. He knew that there were going to be people coming in teaching other things. 
And so he wanted people who would defend and protect the truth. In the books of 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul shares with these younger pastors some advice on what this role of of shepherd and leader and elder in the church should look like. And he lists things like they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, and hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable, free from the love of money. And a little further down in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So at least part of the responsibility for these elders is the, the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Here at Calvary, we have uh, this office of elder as well as an office of deacon and, and uh, deaconesses. Uh, the elders here at Calvary are the, the pastoral staff. So me and, and Alan and Bobby and Pastor Fred and Pastor Chris. The ones who do most of the preaching and teaching. And then we have men who serve in this role of, of, of deacon. And deacon just means uh, somebody who serves. They're, they're people who help to uh, do a lot of the things that take the, the weight off of the pastors and free them up to do the preaching and teaching. And so we have a couple of guys, uh, lay uh, men who are deacons, uh, along with the, the pastors, the elders, and, and those two groups together make up our church board. Our, our leadership structure here, uh, in a lot of ways though, sees the guys who are the, the deacons serve in, in a lot of eldery kind of ways. Like they're responsible for like like going and, and praying and anointing people with oil at times and and for uh, oversight of of different uh, parts of ministry in the church. Often they're men who teach. All of them serve the church in some capacity or other. So that's just a little bit of an idea of what the like leadership structure. Uh, looks like in those terms mean here the overarching command that Peter gives to the elders is to shepherd the flock of God and then the rest of what he says is really just explaining how you're supposed to do that and how you're not supposed to do that shepherding involves leading and it involves it involves guiding protecting guarding loving and, and a whole lot more Shepherding is one of the most common terms used in the Bible for somebody who's a spiritual leader. Jesus himself refers to himself as a good shepherd. So I would consider myself an under-shepherd, just like Jim said, one that's called to serve as an ambassador of the good shepherd. And, and Peter makes it clear here in this context that the flock belongs to God. Shepherding the church of God involves exercising oversight, Peter says. Shepherding involves leading. And, and specifically, leading people towards Jesus Christ. But in different ways, helping us to keep moving forward, to, to keep from being uh, infocused and stagnant, 
to move out into the world and to share Jesus with the rest of this world and to help us move towards serving others. Leadership often means making decisions and casting vision and plotting a course forward and uh, sometimes doing things that, that people don't like because we don't sometimes want to be prodded forward. We like our nice, comfortable spot. But that's part of the role of, of guiding and protecting the flock. It means challenging uh, people to, to do different things. Sometimes it means changing things, which is uncomfortable. But again, that's part of continuing to move forward, growing and maturing. And there's this very real sense of, of like responsibility that I know I feel and the rest of the pastors here feel. There's a burden to make sure that you are safe and guarded and protected and heading in the right direction. And this role of, of elder, of pastor, can be a heavy one. It can, there's danger in this role of it becoming just like a, like a chore, a duty, just another obligation. It's possible for this role to be something that, that guys do just because you know, they don't have a very good retirement and they need the paycheck because they don't know what else they would do. Peter, I think, knows this. I think he understands that. That's why he says, exercise oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. The end of, of the Gospel of John, there's this cool story about the reinstatement of, of uh, Peter, Right? Peter has, has failed. He has denied Jesus, not like once or twice, but three times. And he just feels horrible. He feels unqualified. And, and after the resurrection, Jesus meets and they have a campfire together. And Jesus asks Peter that, that, that question, Peter, do you love me? Peter's answer is, yes, Jesus, I love you. Jesus responds, well, then feed my sheep. And then again, Peter, uh, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you, do you love me? Peter again says, yes, Jesus, I love you. Okay, then tend my lambs. And then, and then a third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And he's, he's crushed. Jesus, you know all things. You're God. You know I love you. Peter, Jesus tells him, then feed my sheep. So Peter, of all people, seems to understand that there is this connection with loving Jesus Christ and caring for and loving and shepherding the people of God. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells uh, us that our service has to be motivated from love. We could do like the, the most awesomest things you can think of the most like churchy things you can think of, but it's, if it's not done with a heart of love, then it's worthless. I am here because I love Jesus Christ. And at an early age, I promised, I, I vowed, I committed to devote my life to serving Him. And I, I'm here because I love you all, like collectively and, and individually. I love this place. I love that this is a place of grace and patience and forgiveness and, and I never want that love to grow cold I, I never want to ever be at that place where I serve merely from a sense of obligation 
It is an absolute joy to be a pastor here at Calvary. So shepherding means leading us towards Christ, but there's more to it, right? It also means following. It means following the will of God. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Shepherding will involve following God's will. It has to be done according to God's will, not mine. Uh, a couple nights ago, on Friday night, I got a chance to speak at the, the Navigators meeting over at UC Davis. Navigators is this, this Christian organization that's like a, like a missions organization, but uh, they have this pretty good-sized presence on different colleges and universities all over the place. And it's like, it was like a, like a cool church service with a bunch of college students who the thing that they wanted to do on their Friday night was go worship God and sing songs and hear somebody preach. Like, it was amazing. It was, it was a, a huge blessing. Uh, the, the theme for the last few weeks or so has been uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. So they've been walking through different points in the, the history of the Old Testament uh, and showing how that all points ahead to Jesus Christ. And uh, The section that, that I, I got was on the uh, wandering in the desert and entrance into the promised land, uh, which, was, which was cool, but a little bit intimidating. So now I'm going to I'm going to preach on like, what, 50 years of redemptive history and 30 minutes? All right, here we go. I'm going to talk fast, so buckle up. But uh, I focused on the life of Joshua, on the ministry of Joshua, because he was somebody who was there through that whole period of time. Uh, he, he was born in slavery in Egypt and then led the people to conquer the promised land. And Joshua is definitely an Old Testament figure that in lots of ways points ahead to Jesus. I mean, they even have the same name, right? Uh, Yeshua is the Hebrew version of the Greek name Jesus. Joshua led the people into God's promised land, into a physical uh, place, but that was only temporary. Jesus leads us in uh, to the ultimate promised land. He leads us into God's eternal rest. But Joshua is such a great example to me of a godly leader who followed God's lead. He was a man who was strong and courageous. He led with confidence and he led with, with clear direction and with authority. But what gave him that confidence and that authority is that he knew exactly what, what God wanted of him. He was following closely where God was leading. He listened to God's voice and he trusted 100% in the fact that God would, would take them where he promised that they would go. Okay, Joshua, I want you to have like the, the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant and stand in the waters, raging waters of the Jordan River. That's crazy, but okay, let's do it. Let's go. And as soon as they do, the waters part. All right, Joshua, we want you to have like you guys walk around this giant fortified walled city and play bad jazz music for a few days. And why would we do that? 
But it worked, and the walls fall down. Like he trusted God. God knew what he was doing. He had this, this close relationship with him. In fact, the only time really that, that Joshua gets in trouble is when this group from the promised land that they were supposed to wipe out comes and tricks them. If he just would have taken five minutes to pray and say, all right, God, is this the thing we're supposed to do? It's a good reminder that at no point can we assume anything. We've got to always follow God's lead. And what I think Joshua wanted most of all was for, for his people to be into this, this place, this promised land, this place of rest and peace and comfort. But even more than that, I think he wanted God to be glorified. I think he wanted everybody to see how awesome and how powerful their God was. He wanted everybody to know that, that God was the one that was winning their battles. That God was the one that deserved all the praise. Peter knows that a godly leader will follow the will of God and seek to glorify God in all things. And he knows that a selfish leader will follow their own will and seek to do things that will gain them personal fame or respect or glory. That's why he says, shepherd according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And I think what he means here is using your position as a leader in the church to profit off of others, using it for financial gain, or using your position for popularity or praise or fame, some other selfish, sordid reason. And, and I think this one's dangerous. I think this one can be sneaky because all week long I read nothing but articles and blogs and books that are all about uh, how to grow your church and make it bigger. And they give all these examples of churches that, that became huge and they make it seem like size is the benchmark of health and success for a church. Like that's the ultimate goal. And not very often in those church growth strategy books and articles do they say, here's what you need to do. You need to pray way more. And you need to seek God's will for your church way more. And you need to preach the gospel more. Usually it's other things that they're encouraging us to do. I think, I think pastors who compromise in an attempt to be bigger more influential is just another version of sordid gain. Peter says, don't, don't do that. Instead, shepherd with eagerness, which is interesting. It's interesting that he uses that word here. I mean, it means uh, shepherd with excitement, with, with zeal, serve with joy, which seems like an odd contrast. I would expect to find a word like, you know, shepherd with humility or selflessness, right? That seems like more of an opposite to sordid gain. But maybe Peter's assumption is that we, that we would be serving with the same kind of eagerness that Joshua had. Eager for the people of God to be blessed and at rest and eager for God to be glorified in everything. Eager for God's will to be done. Eager and excited about what, what God is doing. Because that is so much more exciting. It's so much more exciting to follow God's will and then to watch what, what He does. Because He does miraculous, awesome things. 
It's way more exciting than trying to do things on my own. So shepherding, it means leading towards Jesus Christ. And it means following God's will. And it also means setting a godly example. Verse 3 says, Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Again, Peter contrasts this selfish, prideful leadership that abuses authority with servant leadership. Those, those who lead by example. A, a bad leadership involves manipulation, belittling, uh, putting people in their place, putting others down. Bad leadership is more concerned with authority and control. But healthy leadership simply looks like someone who's following after Jesus Christ. Timothy, again, is this, this young leader that, that Paul puts in charge of the church at Ephesus, which is one, one of Paul's favorite churches. So you know he thought a lot of, of Timothy. Here's, here's the instruction, the advice that he gives to, to Timothy. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. I think that's wise advice. Set a good example in your, in your speech, in the things that you say to others, in your conduct, in your action and behaviors, in your love, tr- truly loving God and the people of God, in your faith, trust completely in God's will, in your purity, stay far away from temptation and sin that entangles. And there's, there's really nothing in this, this whole letter here from Paul to Timothy where Paul encourages Timothy to assert his authority. But plenty of places where he encourages him to be a good example. So Peter closes th- this section here with these words, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Be good under shepherds. When the chief shepherd appears, then you'll receive the reward of an unfading crown of glory. That's the charge that Peter gives to elders. But there's one final thing that he says, right? Something that's, that's for, for all of us. Both elders and youngers, I guess. Is that, that's not a word. <laughs> you know what he means. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think the key to all of this is humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. All, all, all of us. Elders, they need to clearly understand their inability and, and rely completely on God. Younger people, Humbly follow and desire to learn and grow into Christ-likeness. I, th- I think humility is, is, a, is such an important thing in the church. Um, so I, I wrote this, uh, this dissertation on 
church transitions, what it's like to transition from one pastor to the next, mostly because what I had seen is so many churches that had struggled and fallen apart and were hurting at that point of transition. And after like three or four years of being the pastor here uh, and following somebody who was here for 37 years, uh, when it seemed like maybe I would stick, people would ask me, like, what, uh, like, how did you do it? How did you make that transition work? And so I spent some time thinking about it and in investigating. And my, my conclusion really is that th- this church here at Calvary does th- this whole humility thing really, really well. Th- this is a church that exemplifies 1 Peter 5.5. 5. This is this this transition, it worked because my predecessor, Pastor Henry, before me, he was a humble man. He was somebody who loved the church and loved the Word of God and exemplified servant leadership. And he was willing to invest in me. He was willing to like humbly help me figure things out as a a young man. And, And as a church as a whole, you are, we're just so like patient, really, really patient and gracious and forgiving and not critical or mean, but constructive and encouraging. And I tried my best to humbly listen to Pastor Henry's wise advice and to listen to the things that that you all shared with me, knowing that it was from a heart of love. It's weird. It's almost like uh, when we do what the Bible tells us to do, things work well, right? It's weird how that happens. God really does give grace to the humble. God, God, I thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth that's contained into it. Uh, And God, we want to be people who are uh, humble, that people that, that listen to your voice and follow your will move in the direction that You're leading us. Give us as as leaders of Calvary Baptist Church wisdom uh, to to know exactly where You're going and to to listen for Your voice and to be a man who are praying fervently, seeking Your will in everything. God, thank You for this, this gospel of hope and life. Help us to be able to clearly communicate it with a world that needs it. God, in all things, the way we interact with each other in in every area may be with, with humility. Thank you, God, for the grace that you extend to us. In Jesus' name, amen.